If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis 13. And in case you don't know, we actually keep Bibles in the pew. So if you want to use one of those pew Bibles, this will be on page number nine of your pew Bible. Uh, in the last few weeks, we have been studying the life of Abraham, and uh, the last three weeks, we have been in Genesis 12. This morning, uh, my task is to cover both chapters 13 and 14. Uh, it's my sense that I need the Lord's help this morning, and I think you need the Lord's help in hearing, so let's go to God in prayer. Father, we confess that all Scripture comes from your breath, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And Father, as we consider the great faith of Abraham, would you please spur us on to greater faithfulness? And would you grant us greater confidence in that great object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the founder and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, when I preach, I typically like to read the text that I am preaching first and then expound the text, but due to just the sheer length of the passage we have this morning and other details in our service, uh, I'm not going to be able to do that today. Neither will I have the ability to explain every single detail that we see in this text. Rather, my aim this morning is to highlight the main themes that we're to recognize from this section of Abraham's narrative. In some ways, I view this passage, Genesis 13 and 14, like a really well-written Wikipedia article. I don't know if you use Wikipedia like I do, but I find when I find a good article on Wikipedia, there are just countless kind of sub-threads and different topics I can click on for further study. Well, in my study of this text, I just found every verse was filled with some person or figure or some theme that I wish I could double-click on and, and study further. Yet again, my task today is to present the broad stroke, major themes of this text to you. So what's the context of Genesis 13 and 14? Well, these chapters follow, as we saw last week, the incredible failure and sin of Abram in Egypt. It's in Egypt that Abram gives over his wife to Pharaoh out of fear and cowardice. Pharaoh blesses Abram with a tremendous amount of wealth and people. Abram accepts those gifts. Then later, God visits Pharaoh with plagues. Then Pharaoh confronts Abram. He gives his wife back to Sarah. And then uh, he charges Abram to leave Egypt. So at the beginning of chapter 13, we find a wealthy Abram returning to Canaan. And I would argue that chapters 13 and 14, we find an obedient Abram that's pitted against that gutless coward that we saw at the end of chapter 12. That is to say, we find something of a repentant Abram, an Abram who's eager to renew his commitment to the true and living God, who's eager to walk faithfully before him, and who's eager to trust earnestly in the promises of God. So with this kind of as backdrop in our minds, I want us to consider our text and consider the first heading, a great faith, a great faith. I have three headings this morning. My first, number one, a great faith. In chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis, we see Abram's faith on display in rather profound ways. And I want us to see here in these chapters an obedient Abram 
who's, who's diligent to trust God's promise. And this Abram, we could hold in, not only in contrast to the coward we saw in Egypt at the end of Genesis 12, but also the Abram who we will see fail several times throughout his life. So how is Abram's, the question I want to ask is, how is his faith on display in Genesis 13 and 14? Well, notice firstly, Abram's trust in God's promises. His trust in God's promises. In the first few verses of chapter 13, Abram returns to Bethel to worship God. Bethel was in the promised land. Bethel was in Canaan. It was north of what would later become Jerusalem. And not only this, but Bethel was already a place of spiritual significance to Abram. This was the place where, if you look back at Genesis 12, this is where he had first made an altar to the Lord after the Lord had made promises to him. So look down at verse 2 of chapter 13. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to this place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. After years of walking with God, after years of waiting upon God, and after relatively recent failure, Abram is seeking the face of God once more, and once more in the middle of the promised land. Despite sinful wandering and wavering, Abram finds himself once more in the center of God's will for his life. Despite the tranquility of this scene, we see conflict arise within Abram's own household. You see, since Abram left Egypt, his household had grown tremendously, right? His posse at this point was likely probably around 1,000 people. This included Egyptians, probably some Canaanites, as later we'll see, a militia, some shepherds, some herdsmen, servants, women, and children, and of course, his nephew Lot. As we'll see, Lot was very dear to Abram. Lot was something of an heir to Abram's household, and he was something of like a co-regent within his family and in his household. Nevertheless, the land that Abram was dwelling in was not large enough for everyone. The text says that strife arose between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. I trust you've seen cowboy movies before. You can imagine John Wayne playing Dirty Dan. He's riding into the town, this one-horse town. He's got the fastest hand in the west. He dismounts from his steed. He pushes through the doors of the saloon. He looks over at his rival, the sheriff, Pinhead Larry. And what does he say to Larry? This town ain't big enough for the two of us. This is at least something of what I like to imagine was this tension between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. Don't know that for sure. Don't quote me on that. Regardless, we know that something had to be done about the tension between Lot and the tension between Abram. What did Abram do? Look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right, and if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram here, to alleviate strife, makes Lot an offer that's just really good, too good to be true. 
He says, Lot, we both can't stay in, in this immediate area, but there's a lot of land that God's letting us occupy. So you know what? I'm going to let you take your first choice of whatever portion of the land that you want. I don't think this was just a generous gesture for Abram. I think it was, but I think it was more than this. I think this was Abram's settled confidence in the promises of God. Though Canaan not, had not yet been officially handed over to Abram, it was where God wanted him to be. And he trusted the Lord. Abram knew that so long as he was in Canaan, he was being faithful to God. And I think we're to notice Abram's faithfulness and his trust in God's promises because this little brush up with Lot is bookended in Genesis 13 between two scenes of worship. First, Abram's worship in Bethel at the beginning of the chapter, and then later God's renewal of the promises he made to him in Genesis 12. For Abram, as long as he was in Canaan, even if that meant forgoing the more desirable region, he knew he was exactly where God wanted him to be. He was being faithful, he was being obedient, he was being trusting of God's promises. Well, what did Lot do with the offer? Verse 10 and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. At this point, there's so much I can say and comment upon Lot's narrative. And there's so much I can say about Lot just from chapters 13 and 14. But I'm going to say let's hold a pin in Lot's narrative later for Alex to comment upon in later sermons. But suffice it to say for this moment that Lot here begins to embark upon a spiritual drift that would bring profound calamity to his household. I mean, just profound, both spiritual and actual physical ruin to his family. The story of Lot is a tragedy, largely owing to moral compromise and gradual drift away from the will of God. And in the case of Genesis 13, Lot's decision to take the favorable part of the land was not so sinful as his cozying up to Sodom which was on the outskirts of the land, in a place of great wickedness. You see, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, writing many generations after this, he aims old Abram and Lot in stark contrast, like black and white, like difference. And what he's trying to show is not only does Lot take advantage of the opportunity to secure a better land for himself, but he's cozying up to sin. He's prizing the proximity to sin. And what I want us to notice here is how the narrative seems to reflect upon this separation. It says, Abram stayed where he stayed, Lot went where he went, and Moses writes in verse 13, what does he say? Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. This is both a commentary on the foolishness of Lot, as well as a foreshadowing of the fate of Sodom that we'll see in later messages. But how does... Moses, the writer of Genesis 13, how does he comment upon Abram's handling of the situation? Well, I think we can see here God seems to smile upon Abram's handling of Lot because it's right after this that God renews the promise to Abram. Look at Genesis 13, verse 14, 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if, no, no one, can, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. What do we see here? What we see here is God in his kindness renewing parts of his promises with Abram. What did God promise Abram in Genesis 12? We should all know this by now because we bring it up every week. God promised three things to Abram, right? Land, seed, and blessing. And what does God review with Abram here? He reviews at least two parts of that, the land and the seed. And it's worth us asking, why does God review what he reviews to Abram? Well, it seems this review of the blessing is a token of his divine approval of Abram's faithfulness. But second, I can't know this for certain, but could it be that the reason God highlights these problems to Abram were these were the things that Abram perennially struggled with? Can you imagine Abram's posture towards the Lord at this point in his life? God has promised him this land. God has promised him this seed, this great nation. God has promised him that through him the nation shall be blessed. Just imagine his posture towards the Lord. God, you know I trust you. You've promised me this land, and yes, I can live in it, but you haven't given it to me yet. And yes, you've promised me this seed, you've promised me this great nation, but I'm not seeing any children. Where are the kids? Where are my offspring? Oh, and by the way, me and my wife, we're not getting any younger. What are you doing? Lord, Lord, I trust you, but how will you fulfill your promises? Emmanuel, we're not in such a different place than Abram. We too have been given many promises. And we've seen many of those promises fulfilled and partially fulfilled, yet like Abram, we dwell in the land of the in-between. We haven't seen things fully realized. We haven't seen promises fully culminated. Many of us have to struggle and wrestle with whether or not God will be faithful to his promises I don't encourage Christians to experience that, but it is natural for Christians to experience a natural wrestling, a natural turmoil with whether or not God will keep his promises. Christ has assured us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Yet how often does it feel like the world is triumphing against the church? Christ has assured us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Yet how many of us are crippled by loneliness? How many of us are disaffected by disunity that we see among God's people? How many are just dogged by remaining sin? We have to wonder, where is Jesus? How will he fulfill his promises? I feel so lonely. There's so much to discourage us. Movements fail us. Christians fail us. Even Christian leaders sometimes in the church fail us. Where is the Lord? How will he fulfill his promises? Perhaps you've wondered, is he going to keep his word? Christ assures us that he will come again quickly, and I don't know if you're like me, but now would be as good a time as ever. Yet we wait. What do we need in such times? What do we need in times like this? 
Well, Christian, I submit to you, what we need is not that God answer our desires according to our fancies. But what we need is fresh remembrance of the promises of God. We need the Lord to review his promises and review his word to us. We need fresh remembrance of the faithfulness of God. And we need fresh remembrance of the bare fact that whatever my God ordains is right. We need to trust him. Christian, have you learned to find your food in the promises of God? To find your food in his word? Because as for Abram, this review of the promises, this was the doctor's orders. Look at verse 17. Arise, so the Lord speaking to Abram. He says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram trusted the promises of God. This led him to obedience. This led him to worship. First, we see Abram's trust in God's promises. Notice, second, trust in God's protection. Okay, so we're going to fast forward, go over to Genesis 14. This is probably some years after the events of Genesis 13. And what we read of at the beginning of chapter 14 is is of a war arising between the kings of the west and the kings of the east. And this is actually the first war we see recorded in the Bible. And uh, when we read of these kings rising up against each other, we shouldn't think of like kings of great nation states like Egypt or like Greece or Rome or Babylon or something like that. Think more like county mayors and uh, uh, little city judges. I mean, town's not more than probably a few hundred people. Yet I would say these hoarding tribes were nonetheless brutal. Now at this point, I would read verses 1 through 12, but that would require that I have to pronounce several names that I simply cannot. That said, I do want to share with you my two golden rules for Bible name pronunciation. Two golden rules. Rule number one, whatever pronunciation, pronunciation you choose is probably wrong. Same for me. Whatever pronunciation I choose is probably wrong. Somebody smarter than me with more degrees can correct me. But number two is just great. If you use that pronunciation, if you choose your pronunciation and say it with enough confidence and quickly, people will generally leave you alone. <laughs> so I encourage you, just say it loudly and proudly and nobody's gonna, ever going to give you pushback. So in verses 1 through 12, we read of King Chedorlaomer successfully leading the kings of the east to conquer the kings of Sodom. They pillaged the land, taking away all the possessions and all the people, including Abram's nephew, Lot. Because remember, who's near Sodom? Who's in Sodom? Lot's in Sodom. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that, this, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is rather extraordinary. Abram here, under no obligation to Lot, he rescues him. 
With just 318 men, Abram performs a stealth mission, saving the people of Canaan along with his nephew Lot and his family. And this mission of saving with around 300 people is actually reminiscent of other missions that we'll see in the Old Testament. Think Gideon, think uh, David's mission in 1 Samuel 30. But as for Abram, not for any interest in wealth or spoils or population, but only out of love for his kinfolk, he saved Lot and many others, perhaps thousands. And I want to say that this courageous mission is evidence of Abram's faith and obedience. He puts himself at risk to take captivity captive. And how does he do this? Why does he do this? It's apparent that Abram trusted God for protection because he trusted in God's promise. He feared no fate because he knew God had a purpose to fulfill in him. His faith was on display in this mission. And this is later confirmed in Melchizedek's blessing of Abram at the end of chapter 14. So we've seen Abram's trust in God's promises, trust in God's protection. Now notice lastly, trust in God's provision. Trust in God's provision. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. Now I want us to skip down to verse 21. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. It's a striking exchange. This is after Abram's victory where he's just rescued Lot, rescued many Canaanites, and rescued the king of Sodom. And he's gathered now with Melchizedek, who's king of Salem, and he's gathered with the king of Sodom. And then rather bizarrely, the king of Sodom, who has just been bailed out by Abram, with no exchange of pleasantries, no, hey, how you doing? Thank you for saving my life. No blessing, no thanks. He very curtly and rudely demands of Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. This is the king of Sodom quite proudly saying, look, I'll allow you to take the spoils, but you have to give me my people back. Can you appreciate the irony here? This guy's lucky to have the skin on his back, and here he is making demands of Abram. Yet notice how Abram responds. Verse 22 Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's an extraordinary statement. Abram is saying, look, I don't want your treasure. I don't need your treasure. I trust in the Lord God most high. He, my deliverer, has made me great. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is my protector. He is my provider. He is my strength. There's great faith on display here. And what we should be noticing at this point is, again, even more irony. We must appreciate that this Abram 
at the end of Genesis 14 is the precise antithesis of the Abram we saw at the end of Genesis 12. Remember in Genesis 12, Abram did great evil to a king, that is Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blessed Abram with great possessions and Abram kept those gifts. Yet here at the end of Genesis 14, Abram did great good to a king and that king doesn't give him nothing. Either he makes demands of Abram and Abram, look at how he responds. He says, I don't want your men, I don't want your things. I trust in Yahweh, the most high God, the actual possessor of all things, thank you very much. And I refuse to let anyone steal his glory. This is great faith on display. This is great change on display in the life of Abram. We see Abram trust in God's promises. We see his trust in God for protection and then his trust in God's provision. Now how does this apply to us? Well, brothers and sisters, by way of encouragement, in the Christian life, past sin is no prediction of future sin. Past sin is no prediction of future sin. What do they say on Wall Street? Past performance is no prediction of future results, right? Well, it's actually kind of similar in the Christian life. You see, Christian, your past sin, whether 20 years or 20 minutes ago, need not be any commentary upon your future. If you are in Christ, there is nothing holding you back from obedience to Christ. The heights and depths of Abram's performance are absolutely staggering. At the end of Genesis 12, Abram was a little lamb, cowardly, cowardly just spurning the promises of God. At the end of Genesis 14, he is a fearless warrior, saving his nephew, saving the Canaanites, and clinging to the word of God. Few would have expected such feats of faith from such a failure. But this was God's will. This was God's plan, and this tends to be the Lord's design. It pleases God to make much of himself by accomplishing great things from lowly sinners. And it pleases God, praise God, to transform people from one degree of glory to another. By God's grace, we're going to see baptisms this morning. Laura, Diane, and Bridget, we're so happy you are being obedient and coming to the waters of baptism. But and I trust that you realize and are keenly aware, like all of us who have been saved by God's grace, of the ways you have failed in the past, the ways that you have sinned before you came to Christ, and the ways you have sinned, even struggled with sin, and now that you're in Christ. Yet you must realize that for the Christian, past sin is no prediction of future sin. As blood-bought children of God, you no longer have to live under the power of sin's reign. By the Spirit's power, you are capable of walking in newness of life. There is nothing holding you back from a closer relationship to Christ. There is nothing holding you back from closer fellowship with God. There is nothing holding you back from holiness. Past sin is no prediction of future sin. God is pleased to reveal his glory by redeeming sinners. And Emmanuel Church, don't we know this? Don't we celebrate this? This is a statement worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of what? Of whom I am the foremost. And as the foremost, Jesus came to display his mercies that whoever believes in him can turn to him for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it pleases God to save sinners. 
It pleases God to display the riches of his mercy by forgiving, saving, and changing sinners. So we've considered heading one, a great faith. Now consider heading two, and far more briefly, a great royal priest. A great royal priest. We learn of this enigmatic figure named Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So what do we know about this King Melchizedek? We're told that he is he's a royal priest. He's, he's a priest king. Or he's a king priest, however you want to look at it. Well, we learn that this king, he was a king of Salem, and Salem means peace. And Salem, actually, most scholars believe that this is the place, the city, that would later become Jerusalem. And if that's true, based on geography, we can pretty much conclude that Abram probably knew Melchizedek based on where he was wandering beforehand, or at least knew of Melchizedek. It's perhaps, it's possibly true that they were friends up to this point. But we learn two things from this text about Melchizedek. First, he was not your average king. He was not your average king because, first of all, he was of no lineage. The Bible at different points highlights that this Melchizedek was and is without father or mother or genealogy. You see, if you're anybody in Genesis, we're going to hear about your dad. And we're probably going to hear about your mom. And conversely, you ain't nobody in Genesis or the Pentateuch if we don't hear about your lineage, if we don't know the people that you came from. So unlike men like Abraham or Moses or David or the later kings of Israel, there's no mention of Melchizedek's father or lineage. Now, why? Well, some people believe that this is because Melchizedek was what we call a Christophany. A Christophany is a fancy word which means an actual appearance of the Lord Jesus before his incarnation. So an actual appearance of the second person of the Trinity, kind of like a pre-incarnation incarnation. incarnation. Well, you're welcome to believe that. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, And I don't think that's true because Scripture elsewhere speaks of Jesus and Melchizedek very starkly, uh, very clearly as, as two different people. Rather, I think Melchizedek's lack of lineage here is merely to reflect that it's as if this guy came out of nowhere. It's as if this guy just popped up out of the blue. This guy has no context. It's as if this Melchizedek, he is one of a kind. So he's of no lineage. How else is he not your average king? Well, his character is different from the other kings. You remember as the king of Sodom is rather terse and rude and demanding of Abram, Melchizedek comes blessing Abram. He gives him bread and wine, and then he declares a a blessing on Abram. Melchizedek Melchizedek was just not your average king, but even more importantly, secondly, he was not your average priest. He was not your average priest. He was priest of God Most High. Melchizedek is actually the first priest that we see in the Bible, and it's kind of noteworthy if you read the whole Old Testament, he's not a pagan priest. And he's not an idol worshiper. Rather, he's a worshiper and mediator of the true God, the same God of Abram. And in case you don't know what a priest is, is somebody who mediates between the divine and the human. 
So a priest is somebody who stands in the gap between God, or as some people believe, gods, and man. And as for Melchizedek, he was a priest of the true and living God. He was a priest of God Most High. But he was also not like the priests of Israel. Now at this point in Abraham's life, there, there is no Israel. There's only the promise of a future Israel. So there's no history of priests in Israel yet, but for the original readers of Moses, they would have been very familiar with the Levitical rites, with the priestly rites, and this would have stuck out to the original readers of Genesis. You see, under the Mosaic Covenant, the only true priests were Levites. So Israel has 12 tribes. To be an Israelite, you have to be a son of Jacob. There are 12 tribes, and the only people who could be priests were of the tribe of Levi. They had to be Levites. So in order for somebody to perform sacrifices, to perform other sacred rites, not only could you, did you have to be a Hebrew, but you had to belong to a very specific tribe. Yet this Melchizedek bore no relation to the priest under, under the Mosaic Covenant. The point is that he was an entirely different type of priest. He was a priest belonging to an entirely different order. And here's another strange thing about Melchizedek. He blesses Abram, and then he's a ghost. Like, this guy never shows up again in the Bible. Like, actually, in time, like, you don't see this guy do anything else in the Bible. He pops up, his name pops up in a few different texts, but he doesn't do anything other than bless Abram, and then he's out of there. Not only does he disappear from Abram's story, but Scripture makes no reference to Melchizedek for another thousand years. And it's not until then that we discover that there was another way that Melchizedek was not an ordinary figure in the Bible. We find out that he was a forerunner of the Messiah. That is a very type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've considered a great faith. We've considered a great royal priest. Now consider lastly, heading three, a greater royal priest. Please turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. If you're using that pew Bible, you have to turn to the right about 500 pages to 509. This is probably snack dab in the middle of most of your Bibles. Psalm 110 is often referred to as a coronation psalm. And it's a psalm, it's actually the the passage in the Old Testament that's most quoted in the New Testament. So that should have our, our sirens going off. We should be paying attention to whatever this text has to say. It's the most quoted text in the New Testament. And it's a psalm written by King David a thousand years after the life of Abraham. And it's also what we call a messianic psalm, which means it forwards, it it looks forward to the the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Look at verse 1, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, The Hebrew would say Yahweh, God's covenant name, Yahweh says to Adon, my Lord. This is actually one of the Lord Jesus' favorite verses to preach. He would love to challenge the Pharisees with this verse because he would love to ask them, who is that second Lord? Who is Yahweh the Lord addressing? It's not Yahweh addressing himself, right? That would be weird. That would be incoherent. It's not the Lord addressing him. It's not Yahweh addressing himself. And it's not Yahweh addressing David, who's often referred to as the Lord or the Lord's anointed. It's not, that, it's not Yahweh addressing David because David's writing the psalm, right? And David refers to this Lord as my Lord. So Jesus' implication was that second person is me. 
The second Lord is the Christ. Well, what else do we learn about this Lord from Psalm 110? Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What is the text saying about this Lord? Well, he will reign at God's right hand. His enemies will be laying at his footstool. He will rule with his scepter. People will surrender themselves freely to him. Simply put, this coming Lord would be a king. This coming Lord was going to reign. He was going to triumphantly rule over others. But there's something else David wants to highlight about this king, wants to highlight about this Lord. David, David highlights that he will be a priest, and that he will be a very specific type of priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Clearly the Messiah will be a king, akin to David, yet greater. And he will be a priest, yet not akin to the priests that they were familiar with. He was a priest not akin to the Levites. He will be a priest of an entirely different order, the order of Melchizedek. Now why on earth does that matter to you and me? That's all well and good, that sounds great. Why does it matter that this coming Lord, that the Lord Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Well, at this point, please turn to Hebrews 7. Going to now turn from the Old Testament. We started at the beginning in Genesis 13. Then we were in Psalm 110. Now Hebrews 7, page 100, 1004 of your pew Bible. This is, a, this is a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 110. And it's probably a generation or two after Jesus had died Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 7. The author of Hebrews here, he's trying to answer the question, how can Jesus be a priest if he's not a Levite? How can Jesus be a priest if he's not a Levite? The only priests that we know who are allowed to be priests are Levites. Even David himself couldn't be a priest. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So again, how can Jesus be a priest if he's not a Levite? Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, proof text, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The author here, he refers to a former commandment. What's that former commandment? Well, this former commandment, this was the sacrificial program that was managed by the tribe of the Levites. This was managed by the Levitical priests. And this former commandment came from the Mosaic Covenant. And here's the thing about the Mosaic Covenant. It was an imperfect covenant. No one was ever saved by virtue of obedience or adherence to the Mosaic Covenant. It was an incomplete covenant. It was an imperfect covenant that only looked forward to a future covenant. 
It was never designed to actually make people right with God. But here the author of Hebrews is saying that this Jesus, who is a great high priest, is the mediator of a better covenant. He's the mediator of a perfect covenant, a new covenant. And to the Jewish mind reading this, this would have meant and necessitated a seismic change. Like, how on earth did this happen? What initiated this change to a new covenant? Who initiated this change? How did this change come about? Look at verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What makes Jesus the mediator of a better covenant? It's that by sovereign right, he has been made and crowned a priest like Melchizedek. And once again, why does this matter to you and me? Why does it matter that he is of this priestly order of Melchizedek? Well, there are two reasons. First, this priesthood is permanent. This priesthood is permanent. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, brothers and sisters, under the old covenant, priests would have to offer continual sacrifices for sin. There was an unceasing need for another sacrifice, another sin, another sacrifice, another blood sacrifice, another animal. Can you imagine the scene? You're John the Jew, you're Jane the Jew, and you've sinned against God. Maybe you've coveted, maybe you've broken the Sabbath, maybe you've Maybe you've stolen something, and you know I violated God's law. There's something that impedes my connection and my fellowship with God. There's something between me and a holy God. I have violated God's law. I have sinned. Something needs to be done about this sin. I need a sacrifice. So I need to get an animal, because this is what God's prescribed. And not only do I need an animal, but I need a priest. And you know what these priests would need to do? It wasn't enough for these priests just to make sacrifices on behalf of the sinful people. But because these priests were human, they themselves were sinful. So they had to make sacrifices for their own sins before they could make sacrifices for the people of God, before they could make sacrifices for any pious person that wants to be cleansed from their sin. Multiply that by the fact that these priests, they kept dying. They didn't live on forever. Yes, they were to be mediators between God and men, but they kept dying. There was always a need for another sacrifice and another priest. And if you were a pious Jew, living under the old covenant, you would have had the developing, the developing sense that something has got to give here. There's got to be more to this covenant. All this sin, all my sins, all these animals, all these priests, all these sacrifices, there's got to be something more to this covenant. And here the author of Hebrews says, yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 there is something more. Because this Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And because he belongs to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ's ministry is a forever ministry. It's an unfailing ministry. It's a perfect ministry. He holds his priesthood permanently. 
It's permanent. But it's also not just permanent. It's a present ministry. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to say to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is both himself the sacrifice for his people and the one who offers the sacrifice. This means that he is presently pleading the merits of his redemptive work to the Father. The Lord Jesus is presently pleading the merits of his redemptive work to the Father. Jesus offered one complete and perfect sacrifice. Through his bitter passion on the cross, Christ climactically secured salvation for all of his people, all of his saints. We sing it, right? On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The cross truly does save. Yet to this day forward, Jesus is seated at God's right hand where he continually pleads the merit of his sacrificial work. He intercedes for us, present. This priestly ministry is a present ministry, like right now, in time. Right this very second, the Lord Jesus performs this priestly ministry. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. And perhaps you're listening to me describe this intercession. And you still think, Zach, Zach I, don't, I don't really get it. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the Lord Jesus performs a present ministry. I believe in one saved, always saved. Jesus died on the cross in the past, right? And he died on the cross in time, and I trust in Jesus died for my sins. Therefore, what, what do I have to worry about? Why does it matter that Jesus performs a present ministry? Well, Christian, it, remi- it matters because of this. The reason that Christians remain saved The reason why you'll be a Christian tomorrow, the reason why Christians stay in the faith is because the Lord preserves them. It's because Jesus intercedes on their behalf. The text says, he is able to say to the uttermost, since, since, that's a word of necessity, because he intercedes on our behalf. We need Jesus to perform this present ministry. We need him to perform this ministry right now. Christian, how do you know you're going to be a Christian tomorrow? And by the way, I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe that. Christians persevere to the end. But how do you know? How do you know when you roll over and your feet hit the ground, you're still going to be a saint? You're still going to be a child of God? How do you know next year you're still going to hunger after God's word? How do you know next week you're going to be drawn to this place again? Christian, it will not be through any tenacity of your own will, but it will be the almighty grip of a loving God that's holding on to you. And it will be by virtue of the fact that Jesus is at God's right hand where he ever lives above for us to intercede. We need Jesus pleading the merits of his blood. We need him every day and every day the rest of our lives. We need this ministry. It's not due to our strength It's not due to our righteousness. It's because Christ is actively keeping you in the faith. I guarantee you, if you could lose your salvation, you would. That's a fact. The longer I'm a Christian, 
the longer I am just keenly aware that I have enough corruption within me to abandon Christ and make shipwreck of my faith. Why doesn't that happen? It's because Jesus holds on to me. It's because I have an advocate before the throne of God. I have a holy friend at God's right hand who represents me. And he will see to it that all of us reach the end. And he will make sure that our salvation is complete. As I draw to a close, I want to highlight something that I said earlier. That past sin is no prediction of future sin. Well, it's conversely true that present obedience is no prediction of future obedience. We have good days and bad days, right? Present obedience is no prediction of future obedience. In Genesis 13 and 14, Abram's blessing from Melchizedek comes in the context of Abram's great obedience. Nevertheless, this is the same Abram that will despicably laugh at the Lord's promise in Genesis 17. This is the same Abram that will abandon his wife to Abimelech later on. This is the same Abram that in Genesis 16 will sweep, sleep with his wife Hagar's servant, or wife Sarah's servant Hagar. Abraham was a profound failure in countless ways. Yet, friends, you must realize that Abram's standing with God never rested upon his performance, but it only and forever rested upon God's commitment to save. Abram's faltering faith was in the rock-solid promises of God. Ladies, you're getting baptized today. Today is a day of great obedience for you. Today is a day where you'll give your testimony here in a moment and you'll be received at the waters of baptism and you'll testify, this is what God has done for me and I'm going to be obedient to his call. Yet Bridget, Diane, and Laura, I trust you know that your life will be a life of incomplete faith. It will be a life of failing one step forward, a step back, two steps forward, a step back. You're not going to be perfect. It doesn't get easier from here. But you must know that in your best moments and in your worst, you are only in Christ on the basis of what Christ has done on your behalf. And you will only remain in Christ because of what Christ does on your behalf at God's right hand. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. What is he doing up there? He's pleading the merits of his blood. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the great examples of faith that we have. We're so thankful for the way you moved and worked in the life of Abraham. And Lord, we're so thankful the way he trusted you, the way he trusted your promises and your provision. But Father, we're also aware of the way he failed and we're so aware of the way we fail. But God, we bless you that you have provided a sacrifice for our sin and a mediator between us and you. Father, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ.